community-led solutions to difficult problems are often the most successful. And it makes sense that when the people affected by the issue are the ones to help solve it, meaningful change can and will occur. My guest is a pioneer in the research and prevention of suicide amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and she's just been officially recognised for her work. Australian Mental Health Prize winner in the professional category, Professor Marie Toombs. Congratulations. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me today. Well, we're so, so very thankful to have you and have you speak about this pioneering work that you've done. But take us back to the beginning. Tell us about your background and where you grew up. Okay, yeah. So I'm a proud Aboriginal woman from uh, the Uralia and the Kuma Nations. And my family come from a place called Gaduga. Mm-hmm. And Gaduga has been voted the most boringest town over and over and over. So. Oh, really? <laughs> It's a true story. Yes, you can get a tea towel if you go there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's some really great talent that comes out of there, including my uncle Michael, who established the Aboriginal Ten Embassy with three of his mates. So um, it might be voted the most boringest town, but there's some great advocates that come from that place. And what led you in the direction of researching mental health? Yeah, good question. So I don't know, I feel like the universe actually put me here. So I have lived experience. So my beautiful mother was diagnosed with bipolar affective disorder when I was seven. And I grew up just watching her, um, yeah, be really discriminated against um, as a result of that illness. And her whole life has really been wrapped around that illness rather than other aspects of her life. So Mm. having had that period of life, uh, watching my mother, and then um, I kind of just fell into research, to be honest. My son calls me Dr. Whoops. Um, (laughs) I think I I kind of just, um, yes, say yes to opportunities. So I did my PhD back in 2012, completed it as the first Aboriginal person to receive a PhD actually at the University of Southern Queensland. And um, as a result of that, I was tapped on the shoulder to come and work um, in at the University of Queensland. So basically um, I, um, I had a new boss show up one day and he approached me and said, look, I'm really keen to yeah, work in the Indigenous health space. And for me, I I saw that as a bit of a red flag. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he said, co-design. So I went and had a yarn with community and overwhelmingly what they were saying to me was my story. And that is, you know, the impact of compounding trauma, the impact of suicide, the impact of chronic comorbidities and mortality rates. But what led me into this research around suicide intervention came off the back of a beautiful auntie that I met whilst yarning about what Mob wanted. And she said to me that she had lost two children and three grandchildren to suicide. They had died within sort of three to four years of each other. And she said, we need a suicide intervention program. So we need something that we can use at two in the morning because our kids don't kill themselves between the hours of nine and five. And that just stuck in my mind. Mm. And so I was successful in an NHMRC grant and the rest is history. We have a beautiful program that we developed. 
Mm. Well, going into the field and speaking to Indigenous people, community, family members like that auntie you were speaking about around their needs when it comes to health, where did you go in this journey? Oh, I went everywhere. I've been everywhere, man. So north, south, <laughs> As the song east, goes. west. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Across the desert span. Yeah, no. Um, initially we started off in southwest Queensland and over the border um, into Tumala and Bogabilla, which are two discrete Aboriginal communities, uh, other side of uh, Gundawindi. Mm. So, uh, and, yeah, so that was where we initially started with our pilot study. And uh, I think we had about 12 to 15 different communities then. And as we iteratively developed our suicide intervention training program, we just kept connecting with communities. So we've been to Tassie, we've been to Victoria, we've been into the Northern uh, Territory. We've just um, completed some yarning in the central desert area, so around Alice Springs to roll out training there. And it looks very different in those very remote communities in terms of how we do this because English is often third, fourth, fifth language and the interpretation of suicide is very different. So, yeah, it's a model that's tailored and suitable for all communities, but we never go into those communities and deliver until we've actually connected uh, and built rapport and are invited to come in to to do what we do. Mm -hmm. Looking at the communities that you've engaged with across, you know, a large span of Australia, as you're outlining, how prevalent is suicide and depression in those communities when you were first engaging? Yeah, yeah. But look, off the Richter scale, um, just going back a step, uh, one of my first uh, research projects was actually just to look at what common mental disorder prevalence looked like in Aboriginal communities. And the communities actually asked us to do that. So can you imagine communities saying, can you come and have a look at what the rates of mental disorders are in community? Well, 544 people signed up to do a diagnostic mental health interview called the dsm 4 And what we found was that the rates of um, common mental disorders were 6.2% higher um, than the national average, which was a lot higher than what other reports had said. And we actually got really challenged on that report. It can't be that high. We couldn't get that data published in Australia. We actually had to take it to the British Medical Journal of of, um, British Medical Journal of Psychiatry. Why do you think that is that you couldn't get the that information published in Australia? Um, my personal opinion, I think it was too shocking, and I think that I mean one of the the um, the journals that came back to us actually said, "quote Can you put some good news in there?" So you know this challenged a lot of people, and it's. When you think about the way that this country has been colonised, there's a lot of trauma. When you take away culture, when you take away language, um, when you take people off their lands, of course you're going to have these types of problems. And so, yeah, that that figure was just too much for people to handle. But um, it's out there and it can't be ignored. Well, it, it sounds like it's really making an impact and across so many communities uh, starting mm-hmm. to engage with this this program. 
What kind of results are you starting to see now that it has been established? Yeah, well, to date, we've trained over 6,000 people. Um, Our target is actually community people that live in communities. So whilst we have stakeholders that we train, so fly in, fly out, we're far less interested in that because we're honouring that auntie who spoke of people in the community being able to deliver this program. Mm -hmm. So the impact is we're developing suicide safer communities. It's taken a while to get people to actually talk about the word suicide Mm -hmm. um, because it's a taboo subject. But the way that we've been able to approach this is through um, educating mob on the fact that this isn't a cultural disease. Mm. There's no word for suicide that we can find anywhere in Australia in any language group. So it's an introduced disease and it's grounded in hopelessness and loss. So once people start to um, understand that this is actually um, a result, a direct impact of colonisation, we can start to have these conversations in a safe way and the guilt um, that a lot of people carry around this stuff starts to diminish. Mm. And so that's how we approach it. Well, going to what you were saying around language, I know mm. I, I come from Rwanda and there are lots of words in, in my language that look at our spirit and when our spirit is feeling a bit sick, um, our spirit is disconnected from the land, but there's no real kind of terms around, I guess, mental health. Um, there's definitely no term that I know about connected to, to suicide, but those things are a huge part of our community just speaking from where I'm positioned um, and I think, you know, have also been um, exacerbated through colonisation and a number of, you know, major events that um, create mass waves of trauma across a whole a whole populace. I think one of the most difficult things is to find those words and find that, that language. What have you found when it comes to looking at the culturally responsive side of your training? How do you broach those those grounds? Yeah, great question. Um, very similar alignment uh, between what you're talking about and us. And we do refer to um, mental health as sick spirit as well. And it doesn't radiate from our head. It actually radiates from our spirit, our heart, our soul. So it sits in the stomach, in the gut, not in the head. And so that's the difference. Uh, we, we speak about waking up spirit. So a lot of people speak to the fact that um, their spirit or their identity or Aboriginality has been sleeping or it's dead. And so it's about waking that up. And that's around speaking about pride, the fact that we are the oldest surviving civilization in the world. We're 60,000 plus years old. I mean, how lucky am I? I've got that DNA running through my blood. Woohoo, go me. <laughs> but it's about, you know, putting that charge back into us. Many of us are lost. Many of us have this fragility of identity. We don't have language. language. We don't have those things. So in response to your question, it's about giving people back the tools and the empowerment and the belief that, you know, we can do these things. Like we've been very um, 
treated very paternalistically and, you know, the good pat on the head and, and things have been, decisions have been made for us and not with us. And so these types of programs are really designed to empower um, and to, to, to give people hope. Mm. I'm Stephanie Kavanyana Kanyandakwe. This is Life Matters and I'm speaking now with Professor Marie Toombs, who's a, a recent prize winner just last night from the Australian Mental Health Prize professional category for your pioneering research and work in a suicide prevention program that's community-led. Um, Looking at the the scope of how this program is rolled out, you mentioned so six thousand people have been trained. Is that right? Yes, and that's and, correct. And so that's across different different states and different communities. By training people locally to a specific community or a region, does that mean that they have a, an opportunity to, I guess, tailor the program using language and and using specific ways to their exact space? Exactly, you nailed it. So so the protocol is we spend two to three months working with communities prior to going in mm-hmm. and communities tell us what they need. So some communities, uh, particularly some of our more remote communities, may request um, or tell us that they would like a traditional healer as part of um, when we come to do the workshop. Uh, we might need a translator because, as I mentioned, we have, you know, some communities that don't have English as first language. Some of our more Western, Westernised, like 80% of us um, communities that have English as first language may want a traditional um, healer to come in and smoke people as they come into the space. So there's lots of different ways that that mob want us to engage with them but we we ask them what do they need and then we where best we can supply that or they bring who they need to the table have you started to receive data now that the the program is mm-hmm. in action and I should also mention the program is called I assist um, that's right so now that I assist is in action across uh, large po- portions of Australia do you get feedback and data on how it's it's impacting these communities absolutely yes yeah. so we um, we have evaluation tools that we use in the pilot we actually followed people through a mobile app. Um, which was used as a support mechanism for people who had done the training. So we have trained the trainers who deliver the training to communities and that then spreads out. So that's why we've been able to like train so many people because there's trainers that go in and train and it's Indigenous people training Indigenous people. The collection of data through that mobile app yielded over 6,000 hits with our very first little cohort of only 322 people. And those hits on the app were about connection. So people who had done an intervention, so had sat with someone who had thoughts of suicide, connecting with others through the mobile app and debriefing, because it's one thing to be talking to somebody who is thinking about suicide and supporting them, but that actually takes a toll on the person doing that as well. Mm. Yeah, so we've got that. We also know in our very preliminary data that we did 120 interventions in the first three months of starting this program with those 322 participants. So this is going back four years ago now, 120 interventions. 
The federal government have put a $4 million tag on what one suicide costs um, the Australian taxpayer. So times 120 um, people's lives that we saved in real time by $4 million and um, we're way ahead of the game. So moving forward, we're just about to put forward another survey tool which really tracks what's happening in real time in these communities um, and a mobile app again will be developed for that. These are amazing stats. My brain is really just catching up with, with the numbers, but also thinking about you know where where stats um, have the power to gain more support, um, to also shift conversation and, and raise awareness uh, in in a very hard factual way. Um, does this this amount of research lead to further data collection and, and publishing to gain great, greater strength in rolling it out in more places across Australia? Yeah, absolutely. I, look, I think, um, to be honest, the problem that we've got at the moment is we've we've got the data collection, the results are in, we know this thing works, uh, but, you know, it takes so long to translate a program into something that's recognised, you know, federally or state um, within government. I think it takes about 15 years and we haven't got 15 years for this stuff. Mm. So at the moment, like the translation pieces, we get funding through um, PHNs, primary health networks, but they're still guided by these very short time frames. Like we want 10 ISIS workshops in central Queensland in three months. And this program isn't set up to work that way. We go in and, as I said, it could take two to three months to even set this up properly to come in and do it properly with the right people in the room. So, you know, we've got a way to go. Um, people know about it. The The stats are in. The data is great. But it's just, I suppose, that grey area of bureaucracy that I'm swimming around in at the moment and, um, yeah, trying to wear people down with this because this works and it's a social enterprise model also, which means that we can train our Indigenous trainers to set up their own businesses and chase their own funding. And that's the piece that I'm banging on the doors at the moment about, you know, like let's let's support mob to actually support mob. Mm. At the moment, the lead up to the referendum on a voice to parliament is a really challenging time for Indigenous Australians. What's been your experience given your, your work in mental health? Mm. Yeah, look, I'm finding it quite devastating, to be honest, and um, I'm surprised at the impact that it's just had on me personally, but also on my Aboriginal colleagues out, you know, out there as well, where we don't feel safe. And, you know, we've suddenly got the gaze of Australia on us looking at us in a way like, you know, do we support the referendum or don't we support the referendum? And, you know, it, it, it's a difficult space to wade through in terms of um, impacts on mental health. Oh, it's going to be huge. I don't doubt that at all. Like if the referendum doesn't get up and... Um, you know, and I, I don't know, I'm sitting on the fence with this at the moment, but, you know, it's another slap in the face to Aboriginal Australia to say, look, we don't want to recognise you. And whilst I've got um, family and colleagues that don't support it, and I completely respect that, I just feel this gaze that we're getting from the rest of Australia towards us is 
is very uncomfortable. What can be done in, in this moment? You know, we're, we're leading up to it. It's, it's just a, a handful of weeks away. What can be done mm-hmm. to help First Nations people be psychologically safe at this time? Yeah, look, I don't know. I mean, get off Facebook, stop reading the negative comments because they're everywhere and mob love Facebook. Um, Yeah, I I think it's more about flipping the question. What can the rest of Australia do to, you know, to keep us safe in this space? It's not... It's not our responsibility to be protecting ourselves when, in fact, this has been imposed on us. It's been put forward and it's out there. But, you know, my thoughts on this is most Australians are good people, you know, and want to do the right thing. I just don't think that this country has been educated enough on anything to do with this country. You know, like we're the only country in the world that was established as a penal colony. I mean, what a great way to start off. The British show up and say this land belongs to nobody and here's us mob running around, you know, clearly here. And the foundation is very frail. So we don't have a bedrock to even start with. And I think that's what the problem is. How can we have, um, you know, these great conversations and debates when people don't know the history of this country? They don't know about the the policies and, and all the things that have happened to Aboriginal peoples. And I think that's where the problem lies. Education. Well, that is certainly part of your work with with the program that you've rolled out across Australia. And I dare say, as it continues to move across into other communities, there's a greater awareness and education. But the key as well, as you've said earlier, is co-design. We're all in this together and it's, it's all of our responsibility. Thank you so much, Marie Toombs, for joining me today and good luck and all power to you with all of the work that you've got ahead as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's Marie Toombs, the Professor of Public Health in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney and the Australian Mental Health Prize winner in the professional category. And First Nations listeners who are experiencing distress and want to talk to someone about it, call 13YARN. That's 139276. This is Life Matters. I'm Stephanie Kabanyana Kanyandakwe in for Hilary Harper. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.